the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeed. Welcome back to the program here, just about five minutes away from the hour of 6 p.m. Uh, the WPA, one of the many uh, types of alphabet soup programs proposed and put into effect by the Roosevelt administration back in the 1930s to try to relieve the pain of the Great Depression and much of the, the fruits of graft that took place. Uh, the book, by the way, written by Wayne Jett, our guest today, taking a look at comparison and contraction between the events that uh, not just created, but ultimately led into the Great Depression, 1929 and forward. And then, ironically, where we're at today, fast-forwarding the better part of uh, 80-something years. And uh, quite troublingly, as much as it seemed to be the answer for what ailed America back in the 1930s is the proposal we're seeing out of Washington, D.C. again. What we need to do is pass stimulus bills and get money for more projects. Uh, Projects maybe not quite as... uh, um, as spirited as things like the Tennessee Valley Authority to electrify most of a rural America, uh, the National Recovery Act, or the, the much maligned WPA there. Uh, and, and this comparison between the two, it, it's surprising, Wayne, because many economists at the time argued it didn't seem to be doing much to get the economy jump-started back then. Why is it that people in Washington, D.C. think that any of these programs are going to make a bit of a difference today? Uh, Because, uh, in fact, uh, I don't believe the people making decisions actually believe they will help. In fact, the policies, uh, I'm convinced, are not intended to uh, create jobs or to uh, cause a recovery. Uh, Quite the contrary, uh, they're... uh, they're leading us uh, and assuring again, just as was done uh, all through the 30s, uh, that we cannot recover from economic depression. Uh, they are looking to push us deeper into economic depression. Uh, and uh, in, in one particular way, uh, the policies they're using are even more insidious, more, more destructive uh, than in the 30s. Uh, certainly those uh, adopted in the 30s, uh, I'm quite certain, uh, were uh, adopted to cause poverty, not to cure it. Uh, but what we have now is a, a policy of creating tremendous debt and not raising taxes immediately, but incurring the debt uh, that will be unpayable no matter how high taxes are raised in the future. Uh, that uh, presents a destructive trap now, a trap door under our Constitution that could cause the fall of our government. 
this is an extremely uh, serious uh, matter now, and uh, I, I, I need, however, uh, if you'll permit me, uh, to speak a little more about what happened uh, when Franklin Roosevelt took office, uh, because the, the, the picture that I presented so far of uh, getting them into the Depression is not even as bad as the one that assured that they got deeper in the Depression and continued uh, much longer, uh, all by design. Um, I might, uh, if that's okay with you. Yes, uh, please, because as I mentioned, you know, we, we, we saw the big campaign going on. Uh, the president was going to offer America a new deal. Some, looking back historically, might argue it turned out to be a pretty raw deal for most of America. And as you're suggesting, uh, there was a lot more to meet the eye than just this alphabet soup of programs that were proposed in an effort to try to fix things. And in fact, there was another agenda at play, kind of the the behind-the-scenes agenda, I guess we say, Wayne, that uh, was much more insidious, wasn't it? Well, it was was the controlling agenda. Uh, The New Deal uh, was all window dressing. Uh, it was to keep people uh, busy, and uh, the, the news uh, focused on that and so forth. But uh, let's look at what uh, 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 Roosevelt actually did. Of course, he was driven, uh, the, uh, the electorate was driven into his arms by the, by the terrible decisions made uh, during the Hoover administration. Uh, and Roosevelt was elected in a landslide to do three things, at least two things, but uh, clearly... Uh, in my mind, three things. One is to roll back the tax increase that had just crushed the economy in '32. The second was to open free trade again and, and get the, the world economy going again, uh, both things that were done by Hoover that could have been stopped easily by Hoover, but he didn't. Uh, and the third thing was to clean up the fraud in the financial market. He comes into office uh, when that landslide and with uh, a tremendous majority in, in uh, both houses to support him. He could have done exactly those things, and we would have been out of the Depression uh, uh, almost overnight. Uh, instead, he did the opposite. Uh, he, he appointed a Secretary of State who was strongly free trade, as the entire Democratic Party had historically been. Uh, so his party would ordinarily have... have uh, immediately adopted low tariffs. He uh, appointed a Secretary of State uh, very strongly uh, uh, pro-free trade. Uh, That man uh, arranged a conference uh, in June, um, uh, only uh, three months, four months, uh, after uh, uh, Roosevelt's election in London uh, to negotiate the low tariffs uh, uh, with nations around the world uh, Roosevelt did the incredible thing of leading him to believe that that's what he supported. Uh, he was actually at the conference, the Secretary of State was, uh, and uh, uh, Roosevelt uh, broadcast from Washington on the day supposedly the deal was going to be done in London and blew up the entire con- uh, conference by saying, we have no intention of doing free trade. We're going to look out for ourselves, and we're not going to stabilize the dollar against other currencies. That, that was that was the uh, the work of Cordell Hull. Uh, yes, Cordell Hull was the Secretary of State then, 
very strongly free trade, and uh, uh, Roosevelt absolutely pulled the rug completely out from under him, uh, even using a personal emissary that he had sent over there to carry the message uh, that he supported Cordell Hull, and he pulled the rug out from even under his emissary. Uh, uh, Raymond Moley was uh, sent as a personal emissary to carry the message, yes, we're for, uh, you know, doing uh, free trade again. Uh, but uh, he blew that up. Uh, and then, uh, in terms of taxes, of course, uh, his record is absolutely abysmal. He raised taxes and added new taxes every year he was in office. He insisted upon doing it all the way to 1945, except one year. 1939, the Democratic Congress would not pass a tax increase because they lost 81 seats in the previous November elections. You know, one of the other interesting comparisons, and I want to have you elaborate on this when we come back, Wayne, it, it's interesting to note. We came off of the heels of the the whole savings and loan crisis, 1970s, early, early 1980s, remember the whole Keating Five, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And a lot of people forget that when all of that finally came to fruition and the, the collapse of, of so many of the SNLs across America uh, had finally kind of worked its way out, that upwards of 1,800 people that were responsible and involved with and directly benefited from that entire debacle ended up doing jail time. Fast forward 25 years... We have a second major banking crisis, which overshadows the severity. I mean, you know, we're talking about the SNL crisis that had billions of dollars in lost money. And, of course, as we know, what's transpired since 2008 equals, you know, trillions of dollars in wealth that just disappeared overnight. And yet, not a single banker, not a single Wall Street insider has been held accountable has been investigated and sent to jail for all of their actions. SNL crisis of the 1970s, early 80s, almost 2,000 of them went to jail. And by 2011, nobody. And you can't count Bernie Madoff because Bernie was just into his big Ponzi scheme that took place a lot sooner than all of this. In fact, a lot of them were probably jealous that he got as much as he did for as long as he did. 65 billion dollars a lot of potatoes we'll take a time out come back to more of some insights tonight wayne jett with me the book is called the fruits of graft the great depression then and now it's an eye-opener startling information to be sure buyer beware back with more as lifeline continues And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to the program. We continue on our conversation tonight. He is Managing Principal and Chief Economist with Classical Capital, LLC, and is joining us today to talk about his new book, The Fruits of Graft, The Great Depression Then and Now. Wayne Jett is with us tonight. And Wayne, as we were talking about some of the the inability of the administration, both now and back in the 1930s, to try and curb uh, the impact of the market collapse, a market collapse that, as you point out, in both scenarios was largely one that 
wasn't created just out of the cause of different forces sort of colliding in upon one another, but actually was an engineered collapse, and even a lot of the response to it has been very carefully crafted, up to and including the fact that very few people, we were suggesting before the break, have, break have been held accountable for their involvement in any of this, both the current go-around as well as what happened back in the 1930s. Uh, yes, very true. And there's a, a very uh, important reason for that. Uh, that is that the so-called Securities and Exchange Commission that was set up by Roosevelt, um, the 1934 Act established it, um, and uh, it became operative in 1935, uh, but it was uh, set up uh, to be the shield for the big players on the Wall Street, uh, not their watchdog. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, it was uh, put under the control of the biggest manipulator of the 1920s and uh, 1929 and all the way into 1934. The biggest manipulator on Wall Street was Joseph B. Kennedy. Mm. Uh, he was certainly the most notorious, uh, yet he was made the chairman of the SEC. He stayed there for just a little over a year. Uh, for the specific purpose, in my opinion, of staffing the uh, agency with uh, the friends of Wall Street who would make certain that the big players were never touched. Uh, and uh, they have operated that way ever since. Uh, in fact, uh, none of the big players of Wall Street uh, are ever uh, really uh, penalized uh, in proportion to the things that they do. Well, let's talk, for example, about the SEC. It's very curious that as much as there were plenty of warnings that there was no there there in a lot of the claims that were being put forward by the banking statements coming from many of the big institutions, whether you're talking about if Citibank, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, uh, even a few that no longer are with us, like uh, Lehman Brothers, and yet... No hue and cry, no response of the SEC to open up deep, broad, and wide investigations into any of the manipulation that took on uh, took place leading up to 2008. And yet, and yet, their standard and poor's drop the bond rating of the United States government in response to uh, Washington D.C.'s inability to come to some kind of agreement over the debt crisis, and immediately the SEC opens up an investigation into them. Now there seems to be something slightly foul. Well, uh, uh, I think even worse than that, uh, the destruction of the fin large financial firms uh, in 2008 in large part, was planned demolition. Uh, it was not because uh, they had uh, lots of uh, terrible toxic assets. Uh, in many cases, quite to the contrary. Uh, those firms, uh, starting with Bear Stearns, were destroyed by manipulative trading, primarily called uh, naked short selling. And that is uh, today in the electronic computer world, it basically is a situation in which you can create shares, as many as you want to create, and sell them. If you are a hedge fund or a major institution like an investment bank, uh, you can sell as many shares of Bear Stearns as you want when you, do, when you have none at all in your ownership. And you don't have to borrow them, and you don't have to deliver them. They were being allowed to create those in the millions to drive the share prices down of those companies. 
the SEC did absolutely nothing about it. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, of course, being guaranteed by the federal government, uh, at, at one point in July of 2008, uh, because of that guarantee by the federal government, there seemed to be some pressure or at least an opening for the SEC to do something to stop the obvious naked short-selling of those uh, two big firms into oblivion. And lo and behold, uh, uh, after denying naked short-selling was a problem for those, these many years, the SEC issued an emergency order in July of 2008 to prohibit uh, naked short-selling of the shares of Fannie and Freddie and uh, 17 other major international banks, uh, all of whom uh, are primary dealers in Treasury securities. Of course, by then, isn't that long after the horse had already escaped out of the barn? Well, actually, it wasn't. As soon as, uh, before they issued that order, right up to the time they issued, the naked short selling was such a degree that those two big institutions, Fannie and Freddie, and, and remember, these are yield-type uh, investments, the, t- the kind that uh, mutual funds buy for steady return. They were not go-go uh, funds. So all of those shares of Fannie and Freddie really were owned by mutual funds, which do not trade them. Uh, and yet they were trading over 400 million shares per day. 400 million shares per day plus, uh, even though they had something like uh, a million to uh, a billion two shares uh, totally uh, outstanding, that is a tremendous amount of their shares to be trading. Well, as soon as that emergency order uh, went uh, forth saying no naked short selling, guess what the trading volume was? It fell to something like 20 to 30 million dollars shares per day. Uh, so you can see that we had uh, close to 400 million shares of fake shares being sold every day uh, in those uh, two big entities, and it drove the share price down. Uh, the SEC stopped that naked short selling for 30 days, or basically one month, four weeks. Uh, and during that period of time, the, the share prices of Fannie and Freddie about doubled. Uh, so did the uh, shares of those other financial institutions that happened to get that protection. Uh, and yet uh, the, the SEC then uh, revoked its order. They went right back to naked short selling, drove the share price down again. Uh, even at that time, uh, one of the major analysts on Wall Street uh, covering Fannie and Freddie put out a report saying that both of those firms were much stronger financially than they were uh, being shown to be in the market. <laughs> uh, and yet uh, the naked short sell, and, and by the way, they went up again for the three days after that until Friday of that week, and that was the weekend that uh, the economic czar, Henry Paulson, fresh down from Wall Street's Goldman Sachs to be Treasury Secretary, went in with the regulators, cut their throat, and according to his words, the first thing those uh, the heads of Fannie and Freddie heard uh, were their heads hitting the floor. Uh, they took over those entities, uh, basically put them under uh, uh, government control, and what 
what has happened with those entities since then uh, is largely a mystery. But one of the, the great plays that has taken place since 2008 is trying to get those so-called toxic assets out. The Treasury Department has now said they're going to auction those off uh, as soon as the market uh, is ready. Well, uh, the hedge funds that drove those uh, entities uh, uh, down to nothing with naked short selling are now wanting, I'm quite sure, to buy those assets because indeed they are not toxic. They are quite valuable. But they buy them back on pennies on the dollar. That's correct. And they will then make another uh, uh, you know, few billion dollars each per year uh, as they go back up. Now, that is the kind of fraud that is going on. The fraud in the mor- uh, mortgage market was not by small uh, subprime borrowers uh, borrowing money they couldn't pay back. Uh, in fact, the subprime loans uh, that were uh, the loans uh, made by mortgage companies, uh, by and large, performed quite well, and the companies uh, in that business, um, even though they were the target of naked short selling, uh, there is substantial evidence, in my view, that the mortgages were not really the problem. The only thing that made the subprime uh, uh, mortgages go into higher rates of default, well, not the only thing, but a major factor, is that the policy of the Federal Reserve Board uh, essentially uh, fights inflation by intentionally putting people out of their jobs, by increase, uh, purposely creating unemployment. That is the Phillips curve theory that the, the Fed uh, admits that it uses. Well, even right now, we're, we're watching inflation creeping into everything from fuel prices to uh, certainly what you pay for food. I always think it's funny because the federal government, when they when they track the overall rate of inflation, they, they take two things out of the equation. They, they don't consider the cost of fuel or the cost of food, which I guess if you don't drive or don't eat, then you don't have to worry about him being impacted by inflation in those two arenas. Then what do they do? They, they further exacerbate that problem through currency devaluation. How do they do that? Print money. We'll talk more about this. Wayne Jack with us, an education on the fruits of graft, the Great Depression then and now. And, you know, if you think everybody suffered in all of this, 1929 and 2008, yeah, I tell you what, people suffered, a lot of people suffered, but there were also a lot of people who focused more on personal aggrandizement and enrichment rather than ultimately safeguarding and protecting the interest of shareholders who really made out like bandits, literally. Back with more of our look at the fruits of graft with author Wayne Jett as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation with Wayne Jett, the book, The Fruits of Graft, The Great Depression Then and Now. It was interesting that we see not only the comparison between some of the manipulation that took place and the immediate evaporation of uh, back then billions, today trillions of dollars in wealth, but in fact... A lot of that money had to go somewhere. Am I right, Wayne? I mean, some of these people at the top benefited and benefited quite nicely from this collapse on both occasions. Oh, yes. Uh, As a matter of fact, that's one of the great uh, myths or delusions uh, uh, that's put out that uh, all of the money just evaporates. 
In fact, it does not. Uh, uh, in 2008 alone, uh, $13 trillion looted uh, from the capital of uh, just the U.S. alone. Uh, and uh, that is uh, per a Pentagon report that was classified at the time it was given in 2009. It was uh, declassified in March of this year. Uh, by that time, I'd already written my book, concluding the same kinds of things. I didn't have the $13 million estimate, a trillion, I should say. That's $13 trillion looted uh, in 2008 alone. Uh, but um, uh, their conclusions in that Pentagon secret report uh, are the same as mine, that this was financial terrorism, uh, that it was perpetrated by naked short-selling, by uh, credit default swaps, uh, which are closely tied in with naked short-selling. In fact, the SEC had permitted uh, credit default swaps. Uh, anyone selling a credit default swap was authorized by the SEC to naked short-sell in order to hedge its position. In other words, AIG and selling all those credit default swaps to Goldman Sachs, for example, yeah. uh, it, it, each time they sold a credit default swap, uh, uh, for example, on the bonds of Ford Motor Company, they were permitted to naked short sell as many shares of Ford Motor as they needed to in order to uh, hedge their position, guaranteeing uh, Ford's debt. Uh, so they were creating uh, unbelievable numbers of shares, billions of shares going into the market uh, in order to hedge these credit default swaps. And then, of course, AIG is not able to pay off. Uh, and who steps in to guarantee that Goldman Sachs and all the ones buying this fraudulent stuff uh, get paid off? The federal government. Uh, the federal government with Henry Paulson. Uh, saying that the world's going to come to an end unless we pass this bill and you give me $700 billion uh, to uh, to make sure these things get paid off. You know, there's another interesting comparison, too, that you make in the book, The Fruits of Graft. Uh, we, we see on the heels of the collapse that takes place during a Republican uh, leadership in the administration, uh, the next president to come in, a Democrat, a champion of poor and the middle class, whose administrations tend to seem to guarantee the continuance of the suffering of the poor and middle class. they suffering the most. Uh, is that a fair comparison, both between what transpired under FDR and where we're at today? It most certainly is. Um, I was not in any respect uh, surprised uh, at the type of appointments uh, Barack Obama made President Obama made in his administration for his economic posts. Uh, every person he uh, appointed was the first choice for the post of, of the Wall Street oligarch, the financial elite uh, that uh, put this administration in office just as they put in uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, the Roosevelt agenda uh, was as poisonous as it, it could be to make certain that there would not be economic recovery. In fact, uh, when his uh, Treasury Secretary in 1939 told him uh, that, uh, in effect, he could assure him that we would have a boom within a month if he would simply 
agree to across-the-board tax cuts, the response of Roosevelt was to say uh, it's that's silly to suggest this is about economic recovery. Uh, this is a matter of politics. That was Roosevelt's response. Wow, and of course we see almost the identical response in the way the similar discussions are taking place in Washington, D.C. with President Obama. I want to urge you to get more information and get a copy of Wayne's book, The Fruits of Graft, Great Depression Then and Now. You can get it through classicalcapital.com, that classicalcapital.com, and of course through amazon.com. And Wayne Jett, author of this new book, it's been a delight and a privilege to have you on the program. We'll hope to do it again real soon. The Fruits of Graft. Great Depression then and now, and the comparisons between the two, as we've learned tonight, are shockingly startling. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The National Defense Authorization Act. The bill gives the president the authority to indefinitely imprison American citizens without a court hearing, both domestically and abroad, bringing the battlefield to the homeland, all in the name of anti-terrorism. Is it ultimately perhaps anti-constitutional, not just unconstitutional, but anti-constitutional? Well, some insights on this story and what appears to be a significant degree to which our rights as Americans are eroding. We're joined now by Fox News Senior Judicial Analyst, Judge Andrew Napolitano. He has a new book out entitled, Is It Dangerous to Be Right When the Government is Wrong? The Case for Personal Freedom. And Judge Napolitano, is always great to have you on the program. Oh, nice to be with you, Craig. Thanks for having me. Your reaction to this story Story. You know, we've been hearing so much about uh, concerns over trying to deal with the apparent attacks on American soil by al-Qaeda, as if somehow that the combined forces of the FBI, the ATF, the Judicial Department, on and on the list goes, are not significant enough to deal with terrorism. Now we're working toward passing bills that literally, as I say in the opinion of some, would bring the battlefield to U.S. soil. And that's the ability to arrest people without charge and incarcerate them without end and keep them from a lawyer and loved ones and visitors and, most importantly, from a judge and a jury. Who could possibly feel safer that way? But that's what was concocted by the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee at secret closed-door hearings while we were eating turkey and watching football Thanksgiving week. They suddenly uh, sprung this on us on the Monday after Thanksgiving and with minimal debate on the floor of the Senate that would allow the president to declare that the United States of America is a battlefield, and that includes all 50 states and all uh, territories and commonwealths, and permit him to use the military for domestic law enforcement. Now, the federal government has not used the military for domestic law enforcement in this country since 1876 when uh, it was using it for domestic law enforcement in the South in Reconstruction. And one of the provisions that ended the troops in the South, 1876, is uh, 11 years after the Civil War was over, was legislation prohibiting uh, the military for this purpose at any time in the future. They're not going to use the military to direct traffic. They're going to use the military to pick up people that the president wants picked up. Just as he had Anwar al-Awlaki killed by a drone, the president thinks he can arrest people without charges, without evidence, and lock them up and throw away the key. Now, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution 
directly prohibits this and says no one shall suffer loss of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Due process of law means charges, a trial, a fair trial, a judge, a jury, a lawyer, and the right to appeal. The president and members of Congress, this is both parties, this is actually instigated by John McCain, a nominal Republican, believe that they have the authority to do this. It's reprehensible. It won't keep us safer. It'll bring us one step closer to a totalitarian government. It's the type of thing I write about in my book. It is dangerous to be right when the government is wrong. But all of this, Judge, part of this bigger picture of the erosion of our constitutional rights, where so much of this, as I suggested in my opening remarks, is not just simply unconstitutional, but but seems to be working against the Constitution, against it, and, and, and against every form and fashion of what it is that we have held dear in this country and has made this country different from any other nation on earth. That is the notion that the government does not grant rights, but rather the government is a position to protect our God-given rights. Now all of a sudden that's changing. Well, the government acts as if our rights come from it, not from our humanity, because the government continuously behaves as if, as if it can just turn off our rights. It certainly did with Mr. Al-Awlaki, who notwithstanding Ending, uh, his his un-American or uh, or non-American, I should say, sounding name was born in New Mexico. The president decided on the basis of secret evidence that only he and the people to whose confidence he, he in whose confidence he reposes trust saw that this person was so dangerous. He, and the evidence of his behavior was so overwhelming that a trial wasn't needed. When Abraham Lincoln made that argument during the Civil War, while Southern troops were shooting at Northern uh, soldiers and, and, and invading Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court said you can't do that. The Constitution exists for everybody in good times and in bad. The government just can't declare a person outside the protection of the Constitution. If that were the case, then the Constitution means nothing. And you, Mr. President, took an oath to uphold it. So that's what we're going through right now, Craig. Uh, I, I don't know what President Obama will do with this, and I don't know who will uh, succeed him, whether the, his successor comes about in January of 2013 or, or four years thereafter. It doesn't matter. The framers didn't trust this kind of power in the hands of any individual, and that's why they gave us these guarantees, these protections. If the Congress thinks that it, it can violate its oath to uphold the Constitution by writing away these guarantees, then we have no freedom. Then our freedoms are subject to the whims and the fears of Congress. Well, and we live in a day and an age, Judge, as you know, that we've seen even the president insist that if Congress can't get, quote-unquote, the job done, that he will do it for them, as if to suggest that somehow now the executive branch is going to be able to somehow inherit or take on what uniquely had been held as a right of the legislative branch to well, pass he laws. Started, he started a war on his own. Uh, he bombed and killed in Libya while uh, he was in Brazil, and the Congress was on spring break. Did you know the Congress gets a spring break? Well, it does. I thought only college students did. Nevertheless, Congress did nothing to stop them from uh, from doing that. Congress did nothing when he when he killed this uh, American citizen and the guy's 16 year old son, about whom he admitted he had zero evidence of uh, of criminal uh, behavior or or immediate uh, or immediate danger. Congress did nothing about it. So Congress, which sometimes acts like a potted plant. When the president does things that Congress perceives as politically popular, although unconstitutional, or as my friend Craig Roberts says, 
anti-constitutional. The Congress is just as much to blame for letting the president get away with this as the president is for doing it. You know, there's an important wake-up call here, and, and I want to encourage people, Judge, to get a copy of your new book, Is It Dangerous to Be Right When the Government is Wrong? This notion that, you know, we, we need to decide what do we value more? Do we value safety or freedom? I tell you, I, I remember walking down the streets of Moscow prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I have to tell you, even at 10, 11 o'clock at night, in very dark streets, you felt eminently safe. You knew somebody with an iron fist was in charge. And the crime rate in Moscow in the middle of the night was practically nothing under Soviet communism. But you also knew that as safe as you were, you had no freedoms whatsoever. Do we really want to live in that kind of environment where we feel safe but have no freedoms to, no, to exercise no, in that no, safety? Of course. Of course not. Of course we don't. But that's what this government, Republicans and, and Democrats, is bringing us to. Look, George W. Bush and Barack Obama have frequently argued that their first job is to keep us, keep us safe. They're wrong. Read the Constitution. It tells you what the president's job is. The president's job is to keep us free. If they keep us safe but unfree, they're not doing their job, period. That's what this book argues. Here's the $64,000 question, Judge. If if Congress is not doing its job, if the president is not doing this job, and we have concerns even about the judicial branch doing theirs, what do we do as American citizens? We have to vote them uh, out of office. Or we have to uh, disobey unjust laws. The courageous people who, who desegregated, segregated lunch counters in the South in the 50s and the 60s broke the law. But those were unjust laws that the legislatures lacked the political will to change and the courts lacked the intellectual fortitude to change. But, but civil disobedience changed them. Here's an example of present-day civil disobedience. The Patriot Act lets federal agents write their own search warrants, something else we could talk about. It's blatantly unconstitutional because the Fourth Amendment says only judges can issue search warrants. When they hand you the search warrant, they tell you you can't tell anybody about it or will arrest you for telling anybody. Guess what? A lot of people who've received these self-written search warrants have been telling people. They're lawyers who have been going into court to challenge them. Guess what federal judges have been doing? Invalidating them. So sometimes it's necessary to be courageous in the face of an unjust law and do the right thing, and freedom will prevail. The other thing to do is to vote out of office anybody who, who enacts legislation that blatantly, directly, and clearly and profoundly violates the Constitution. Judge Andrew Napolitano, again, the new book, Is It Dangerous to Be Right When the Government is Wrong? The Case for Personal Freedom. The book newly published by Tom Snelson and available through Judge Napolitano's website at Judge Knapp. That's JudgeNAP.com. As always, Your Honor, appreciate having you on the program. Pleasure, Craig. Thanks for having me. Take care now, Judge. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.